Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, tis a fearful thing to be no more, or if to be, to wander after death. To walk as spirits do in breaks all day, and when the darkness comes, to glide in paths that lead to graves, and in the silent vault where lies your own pale shroud, to hover over it, striving to enter your forbidden corpse, and often, often, vainly breathe your ghost into your lifeless lips. From Oedipus by John Dryden and Nathaniel Lee if you've ever visited Colorado, or if you're lucky enough to live here, then you know it's an outdoor enthusiast's playground. Hiking, biking, skiing, the list goes on and on. But there's another side to the Centennial State that most people will never see. It's a side that's a little darker, a little more sinister, and a little bit Strange. Welcome to Strange Colorado. Thanks to more recent events, we as modern Americans can unfortunately better empathize with what life was like for those who came before us before the advent of modern medicine and vaccines. Because of the advances of science, Diseases such as tuberculosis, polio, and yellow fever are nearly obsolete concerns in our minds today. But this was not the case for those who came to Colorado in droves in the early and mid-1800s. Being diagnosed with one of these diseases was essentially a death sentence. And unfortunately, many early Coloradans were confronted with this reality. According to the World Health Organization, yellow fever is an acute viral hemorrhagic disease that is transmitted by the bite of mosquitoes. The yellow aspect of its name comes from the jaundice that afflicts many patients with the disease. This jaundice is brought on by cell death in the liver and kidneys, leading to a yellowish tone in the skin and the whites of the eyes. Other symptoms of yellow fever include headache, nausea, muscle pain, vomiting, and fatigue. It is thought that the disease originated thousands and thousands of years ago in the rainforests of Africa and began traveling along the trade routes and sailing ships until finally landing in the Americas through the slave trade. It exploded across the U.S. via the slave ports in New Orleans and made its way across the continent as people infected with the disease and the mosquitoes carrying it followed miners and settlers traveling out west, and landed finally in Colorado. While we do have a vaccine that is administered that can prevent the onset of the disease in the first place, and is usually required before traveling to parts of the world where the disease is still common, there is no actual cure for yellow fever to this day. Tuberculosis was also rampant around this time and was actually the leading cause of death in the U.S. in the 1800s. 
TB, as it's commonly known, causes severe coughing fits to the point of coughing up blood. Other symptoms include fever, weight loss, and eventual respiratory failure leading to death. Now we have a cure for TB and many afflicted make full recoveries with no issues. However, in the 1800s, the only hope for those suffering from this infectious disease was to move to drier, cleaner climates such as Colorado, if they could afford to. As many as one third of Colorado's initial settlers were those suffering with the disease. While they usually did not find a cure here, the open air prevented the easy transmission of the bacteria, and the higher elevations helped to prevent it from spreading through the lungs quite as quickly. Towns such as Boulder and Colorado Springs owe their very existence to this phenomena, as travelers who arrived in Denver expecting clean mountain air discovered a smoky, dirty industrial mining town instead, and were forced to find other areas to recuperate that were not so densely populated and polluted. Some of the state's most famous residents came to live in Colorado seeking relief from their ravaged lungs. Doc Holliday, the legendary gambler and gunslinger of the Wild West, as well as the inventor of the Stanley Steamer and the builder of the infamous Stanley Hotel, F.O. Stanley, were chief among them. It's safe to say that many of my favorite movies and books, i.e. The Shining and Tombstone, would not be in existence today without the tuberculosis settlers of the 1800s in Colorado. Speaking of my favorite movies, one on the top of my list is the 1982 classic Poltergeist. I would say spoiler alert, but it's a movie from the 80s, and at this point, if you haven't seen it, that's not really my problem anymore. Just go see it. The movie is a cautionary tale of what can happen when you don't respect the resting places of the dead, whether you're aware of their presence or not. And all of that background leads us right into today's story. Located in the heart of the city of Denver and flanked by some of the wealthiest neighborhoods within the city limits, Cheeseman Park is a tranquil and beautiful escape from the high-paced and high-density hustle and bustle of city life that surrounds it. It includes a lush green space, running and biking trails, as well as a beautiful pavilion that hosts many events such as art festivals, concerts, and many of the area's LGBTQ community celebrations. It encompasses 81 acres and was listed as the number two most impressive park in Denver, according to Uncover Colorado. While the area has always been a peaceful and beautiful spot, it's not always been a public park. In 1859, a year after its opening in 1858, Prospect Hill Cemetery received its first permanent occupant. At this time, Colorado was still just a territory on the outskirts of the United States. The flood of people into the region forced the need for more than just tents and small cabins that housed mostly miners and prospectors. The growing population meant that conveniences such as mercantiles, saloons, schools, churches, and thanks to our previously discussed rampant spreading of diseases such as tuberculosis and yellow fever, cemeteries were also necessary. In 1860, the land was officially deeded to the U.S. government by the Arapaho people, even though it was already settled and in use by white settlers in the region at this time. The government then sold it to Denver City for just $200, and in today's market, that is a price to die for. 
1873, the city renamed the cemetery Denver City Cemetery, but it continued to be known to the locals as Prospect Hill. As many things were then, and for a long while after, unfortunately, the cemetery was sectioned off so that those who moved in could be grouped by ethnicity and religion, leaving some parts neglected and overgrown while others were beautifully kept. Even in death, it seems, it's hard to find a good spot in a decent neighborhood, depending on who you are. By the late 1880s, the cemetery was all but ignored entirely and rarely used. It was becoming an eyesore to those who lived in the beautiful, expensive homes in the neighborhood surrounding it. Because of this, real estate developers began taking steps to rezone it as a park for the growing city's elite to enjoy. This was not a hard sell at all, and soon the families of those interred within were given 90 days to relocate their loved ones' bodies. Again, this sounds a lot like one of my favorite movie plots. Relocating established cemeteries is just never a good idea. So those who had the means to did move their loved ones, but there were many who could not afford this. Consequently, it took years for relocation to be completed for the Catholic, Jewish, and Chinese sections, as well as the wealthier elite who could afford to get it done in a timely manner. Unfortunately, many of the plots housed criminals, vagrants, and the poor, and so they sat untouched as the other areas around them were being cleared. More than 5,000 bodies were left behind unclaimed, forcing the city to hire undertaker E.P. McGovern to complete the monumental undertaking, pun intended, of relocating all of the rest. For the low, low price of $1.90, McGovern was given a new coffin for each body, as most had crumbled to pieces in the earth by this point. The project began on March 14, 1893. Citizens in the area strolled by on occasion to watch the grisly work. Entertainment, after all, is entertainment. McGovern was an enterprising man, and after a few days of doing things by the book, he began to look for ways to cut corners. And corners, it would seem, is not all he cut. It turns out it was much cheaper for him to use children's coffins rather than full-size adult coffins. Some say that part of this decision may have been due to a coffin shortage at the time from a tragic mining accident that had recently occurred in Utah. Whatever his motivations were, McGovern decided to disassemble the remains of those he exhumed and cram them into smaller coffins, hacking off limbs and heads to make sure they would fit. Onlookers stated that body parts were strewn all over the grounds with no care for making sure they were labeled and that the correct person was being placed into the correctly labeled coffins. Sometimes several decayed heaps of remains were shoved into one single coffin, while at other times a set of remains may be split up between a few different coffins. The less scrupulous of those onlookers who came to watch the ghoulish work even began collecting valuables from the unprotected corpses laying on the grounds. Hearing reports of the disaster of a situation from disgusted locals, Mayor Rogers finally canceled McGovern's contract. However, with some graves still sitting open and exposed and many more untouched entirely, the city never did award another contract to ensure the completion of the work. It is estimated that at least 
2,000 bodies are still buried beneath the park. Many believe the reason that the city never did go back and complete the relocation of the remaining bodies is due to the fact that many of the bodies that had been interred in that cemetery had actually been victims of a deadly yellow fever outbreak in early Denver. And as we said before, there is no cure for yellow fever, only a vaccination you can take to prevent its onset. And to go in today to reopen those graves for relocation would risk reintroducing yellow fever to the population of modern day Colorado. And the last thing we need is more germs flying around this state. In 1894, work began to level the ground in preparation for the park. By 1902, there were still open graves that had not yet been filled in and covered over as work on the park continued around them. Finally, in 1907, that work was completed and the landscaping and beautification aspect of the project commenced. The park featured a figure eight style pathway and a giant neoclassically styled pavilion and reflecting pools that are still its central features today. The park has seen periods of disrepair as the city ebbs and flows around it. In the 1970s, the pavilion was restored and the grounds surrounding it were redesigned and most of the original landscaping was lost. In 2008, construction began on the parking structure for the Denver Botanic Gardens that lie just on the east border of the park. During the construction, several coffins and remains were dug up. These bodies were then removed to another cemetery and construction continued. It's a bit odd to think that typically when a construction company uncovers, say, a dinosaur bone, construction completely halts, sometimes for months, as the site is carefully excavated and processed. I suppose pioneers from the dawn of Colorado's beginning don't merit quite as much thoroughness or care. It's no wonder, given all of this, the original residents of this park, whose rest was so crudely and callously interrupted all those years ago, have some questions for the living. As soon as excavation began on the original graves back in the 1800s, those interred there within made their displeasure known to anyone who would listen. For instance, a grave digger assigned to the project by McGovern named Jim Astor claimed that a ghost, quote, landed upon his shoulders, end quote, and absolutely terrified him. Astor was also reportedly looting the remains as he unearthed them, so whatever reason this spirit had to attack Astor, I'm sure it was a valid one. Jim Astor reportedly fled from the cemetery after the attack and refused to return. The residents in the home surrounding the graveyard at that time also reported that they began to notice confused and saddened apparitions that wandered around their homes, sometimes even knocking on their windows and doors. They also claimed to have heard the sound of despairing moans coming from the gaping holes of the already opened graves. But the stories don't stop there. People who visit the park today report feeling overwhelmed with dread and sadness. More unsettling still, if you're like me and your skin crawls when someone whispers near your ear, is that there have been those who claim to hear a multitude of hundreds of voices whispering incoherently in the areas where the graves are still thought to lie. Reports of unaccompanied children playing in the park well after dark are also frequent. Upon being approached by concerned adults, these children seemingly vanish into thin air. 
A woman can also be seen singing to herself as she slowly strolls through the lush grounds, but in a moment, she also disappears. Some even say that when the moon is just right, you can still see the ghostly outlines of the old gravestones marking the places where their original inhabitants were meant to lie. Those who've stretched out on the grass in the park to enjoy the sunshine sometimes claim that as they go to sit up, they feel as though something or someone is restraining them. Panic sets in just before whatever it is finally loosens its grip and they're able to jump to their feet. Ominous shadows, strange mists, and orbs of light can also be seen wandering the grounds in a slow and almost lost fashion. Cheeseman Park is a beautiful place, and it's absolutely worth a visit if you're in the area. However, if you do decide to take a stroll through the lush gardens there, be mindful of where you're walking, because you never know what or who you might be walking over. And if you're brave enough to visit after dark, tread lightly and with respect to those who still roam the grounds to this day, forever searching for the place where they were promised eternal rest and peace. And if Hollywood has taught us anything at all, it's that it's always best to let the dead do just that. Most of today's source material comes from Legends of America, Wikipedia, History.com, The Gazette, as well as several stories I've personally been told by longtime Denver area residents. And I always think word of mouth is the best way to hear about spooky stories like this one. Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at Strange Colorado Podcast. If you have a strange story of your own or an episode suggestion, you can reach me at strangecoloradopodcast at gmail.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.